going to continue in a series tonight called This I Believe. Do you remember that? This I Believe. And the subject tonight is about eternal security. And our main text tonight will be John chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 27 <clears throat> through 30. Verses 27 through 30. If you open your Bibles there and uh, follow along as I read. John 10, chapter 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the beautiful music we heard tonight. We thank you for the song of, uh, of full assurance that we know whom we have believed, and we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we have committed unto him against that day. And the song of commitment, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And then when we think about that name that is above all names, the name before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord, to your glory, Father. And Father, as we consider now this uh, subject of eternal security, we are so grateful that we are secure in our Savior's hands. And we are secure in your hands as well. And so, Father, give us understanding, enlightenment, appreciation, joy, peace within our souls, confidence because of what we have in you and nothing that we have done in and of ourselves. So now, Lord, you take these words and that may the Spirit of God use them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I perhaps, this is perhaps one of the most debated uh, doctrines of the Bible, along with the matter of Calvinism and Arminianism or uh, predestination, a free will of man, is this doctrine of eternal security. Um, our church, uh, I, I talked about Calvinism and Armenian, Armenianism a minute ago, and often the doctrine of Calvinism is linked with eternal security, and often the um, doctrine of Armenianism is uh, linked to those who believe that you can lose your salvation, but that is not always the case. One does not have to hold to all the doctrines of Calvinism to believe in eternal security. Eternal security has also been described as once saved, always saved. And the opposition to eternal security often comes in the concern about a sinning believer or about one who continually sins or a believer who has committed a grievous sin or one who has seemingly walked away from the faith. I remember when I was on visitation one time as a teenager, I was paired up with my father and we went to a house one time and the doctrine of eternal security came up. And the man said, you mean to tell me that if I, and then he named some sin, describes some sin that I will not describe to you tonight. But I, my, my mouth probably went, and my eyes probably got that big. That's just the way I am in situations like that. But you mean to tell me if I do that, when the Lord comes back, I'm going to be with him. And so often, the opposition eternal security comes in that type of form. I could go along denominational lines and give you a list as to who is pro-eternal security and who is anti-eternal security. 
But sometimes that doesn't even work because denominations have split over this matter as well. Um, the denomination that our family was a part of for the first 11 years of my, li- of my life, uh, not our life, we didn't live our lives together in all that time, but the first 11 years of my life, um, traditionally that denomination did not believe in eternal security, but I have never heard anyone talked about that they could lose their salvation. I believe these churches in that particular denomination, that section of that denomination or in that area of the country generally did believe in eternal security. Then we became Baptists, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, sin-hating Baptists. And uh, Baptists traditionally believe in eternal security, and yet there are segments of Baptists who do not believe in eternal security. Obviously, those who have a works-based salvation do not believe in eternal security, because if you miss participating in the sacraments or miss communion often enough, you risk losing your salvation if you had enough good works to begin with to obtain it. Those who believe in a works salvation have missed the point of what Paul is saying to the Galatians when he said, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And where Paul says, if righteousness came by the law, then Christ has died in vain. Those who believe in eternal security often take a phrase used by Paul in the book of Galatians where it says, you have fallen from grace. But it's obvious that when you examine the context of that phrase, it proves that those advocating that position don't understand what Paul is talking about to begin with. Paul is is proposing the exact opposite. In essence, he is saying that if you mix the law with the grace, you never had, you have fallen short from the concept of eternal life, or the fall of the concept of grace. Uh, we believe in eternal security. Let me give you three reasons tonight why we do, and I may go slowly through this because I think we're going to be done in short order this evening. First of all, we believe in eternal security because of the nature of the life that is given to us. Look at uh, verse 27 and verse 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's the nature of the sheep, that they follow their master. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Let me ask you this question, and we're going to English class now. Many of you didn't like English class, but it was one of the few classes I understood when I was in school. Uh, What is the adjective in verse 28 that describes the life that we are given? I heard it somewhere. It is eternal life. Now look at verse 29, and what is the first resulting consequence of having this eternal life? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. One who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and has eternal life never perishes. Now, if you were to have eternal life, and you could lose that eternal life, did you have eternal life in the first place? No. I believe you probably had something that's called interrupted life or interrupted eternal life, which isn't eternal life at all. It is a life that is given to us that we can never lose. Now, what familiar passage, perhaps the most famous passage in all the Scripture, which was preached on about two weeks ago on a Sunday morning, 
reminds us about eternal life and not perishing. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. The background of that story, of course, you know, is uh, when Nicodemus came to Jesus asking him questions. And Jesus said to him, "Um, you must be born again or born from above. It is life that we do not work up. It is worked out by God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. It is an eternal life. It is accepted by faith. Its only condition is believing. It is illustrated by the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, life unending, by looking to the serpent. You remember that story? that the Israelites were murmuring, complaining, and God sent the serpents to bite them. And the, the remedy was that Moses was to lift up the serpent in the wilderness and that those who looked to the serpent would be cured of their illness, would be cured of their snake bite, would be cured of the poisoning that took place. And uh, that is an example. And Jesus uses an example as to how we are saved. We are saved not by looking at ourselves, but by looking up to Jesus Christ, and he gives us eternal life. It is described as eternal life and everlasting life in verse 15 and verse 16 of John chapter 3. And those who believe shall not perish. He uses another word in verse 18 of chapter 3, where it says, he that believes on him is not, what? Condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Consider these verses that Jesus spoke in other places in the book of John. John eleven twenty five. 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Those who believe are not under condemnation. They are passed from death unto life. Uh, F.B. Meyer gave this illustration about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. They hired three guides and began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part. The men roped themselves together in this order. Guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide. They had only gone a little way up the side when the last man lost his footing. He was held up temporarily by the other four because each had a toehold in the niches they had cut in the ice. But then the next man slipped, and he pulled down the two above him. The only one to stand firm was the first guide who had driven a spike deep into the ice because he held his ground All the men beneath him regained their footing. F.B. Meyer concluded his story by drawing a spiritual application. He said, I am like one of those men who slip, but thank God I am bound into a living partnership to Christ. And because he stands, I will never 
perish. So one who believes never perishes. One who believes has eternal or unending life. He possesses it presently. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We look at this life. It is a life that's everlasting, but it consists of a love that never ends. Romans 8 and verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor power nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Now, I preached a sermon on that some time ago, and I had a good friend sitting in the back corner there and told me afterwards, he said, I can summarize your sermon in one word. Nothing. Now, that doesn't sound very flattering, does it? But that was one of the main words in the passage. Nothing. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And we'll find out more about that as we go on to the second point. First of all, we believe in eternal security because of the nature of the life that is given to us. Secondly, we believe in eternal security because of the power of the one who saves us and keeps us. Considers God's power and our weakness in regards to our salvation before we go back to the text. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us when we had no strength and no merit of our own. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you all know it. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I thought of this in regards to this sermon when I heard Matt preach last week about Naaman. But have you ever noticed in the scripture how God arranges events so that no one else could ever take claim for the victory? Now, the point in case there was Naaman last week, how Naaman went down to the Jordan River, dipped down seven times in that awful, small, muddy, rushing river. And uh, Naaman thought, there are much better rivers that I could wash in. And Matt alluded to the fact that uh, some of these rivers had reputations of, of, being, of having a healing element to them. But God didn't want that. He wanted something where no one could claim victory to this. Nothing that they had done would cure Naaman of his leprosy. It was the fact that God healed him in relation to the obedience that Naaman exhibited at that point. All right, consider other places in the Scripture. Abraham and Sarah. Now, that's a frightening story to anybody who's a senior citizen, right? <laughs> but God could have built a great nation out of two young, healthy, beautiful people, right? <laughs> that would have been the easiest way to do it. And in fact, there are a few problems along the way with Abraham and Sarah because they decided they're going to take matters in their own hands and they're going to use um, Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. 
No relation to Hagar the Horrible. But, uh, and Galatians, Paul uses that in illustration of trying to obtain salvation by works and obtaining salvation by grace. Uh, Abraham and Hagar represent the child of the flesh or the, the works of the flesh. And um, Abraham and Sarah represent God's grace and what he does and his power in saving us. You know, they were past childbearing years, and we're going to read a scripture later about that, but God brought the nation of Israel through, through two people who were past childbearing years who never had children themselves together. But later on, God blessed them with a child, and many generations passed that. And through that line came the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us. Consider uh, the virgin birth. How that, you can't explain that outside of the power of God. The power of the highest would overshadow Mary. Think of Gideon. Gideon, um, well, he started out with a, a pretty sizable army, and the Midianites had a host. But God told him to whittle that army down to how many people? 300 people. Now, how are you going to go to battle against a host with just 300 people? Well, the reason was so Israel could not claim the could not claim uh, could not claim that they got the victory through themselves. They could claim the victory because it came through God, but they could not claim the victory because it came through themselves. Uh, think about David and Goliath, or think about um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now, it seems in the passage that it was uh, Elijah's idea to pour all that water all over the, the, the altar. But you know, the prophets of Baal, they were supposed to call upon their God, and he was supposed to uh, bring fire down upon their altar. And nothing ever happened. Of course, uh, Gideon uh, teased them about it. Perhaps he's out shopping, or I don't know what all he said. I didn't read the passages this afternoon. But... Um, but then Gideon just prayed a few words, and it kind of reminds me when you put too much um, lighter fluid on the charcoal, you know. Pew! Right away, the fire came down from God. And Elijah made it just as hard as he could on God. But that didn't matter, because the victory was of God and not of any human origin. Let's return to the, the text here, John 10 and 28, and see how we are kept by the power of God. Starting at the beginning of the passage, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isn't the Savior's hand pretty strong and almighty? We have already seen that he gives us eternal life and that we shall never come into condemnation. But we also see here that no one can snatch us out of the Savior's hand. And we somewhat covered that fact when we read the Romans 8 passage that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that covered many circumstances. But this is telling us here that no one can snatch us out of the hands of the Savior himself. But notice as you move past that phrase, the devil grip that we are in. And I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them, 
who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. James Montgomery Boyce was a Presbyterian preacher in Philadelphia. And when I was a child, my mother listened to Christian radio religiously. Um, she listened to it all the time. And on Sunday afternoon, uh, there's a program called the Bible Study Hour with James Montgomery Boyce. And he gave this illustration concerning this uh, passage. Sometimes, now this covers a subject that I know very little or nothing about. And some of you might be able to relate to it, okay? Sometimes in rough carpentry, a workman will drive a long nail through the thinner boards so that the point sticks out the back. Then with a blow of his hammer, he will drive the point of the nail sideways, embedding it in the wood. This is called clinching the nail. It makes the joint just a bit more firm because the nail cannot work itself out from this position. This is what Jesus did in these verses. He was so interested in getting the doctrine to stick with his disciples' minds that he not only drove one nail, he drove two and clinched them both. First, he taught that those who have been given, first he taught that those who are his have been given eternal life. I give them eternal life. That is the nail. This alone holds the truth fast. For eternal life is life which can never be lost. If it could be lost after a few years or after many years, it, was never, it would not be eternal. I said that a little while ago, but uh, he said it a whole lot better, didn't he? Nevertheless, Jesus knew that many would attempt to explain it away, so he said, they will never perish. So you get it? Um, he gives us the eternal life. That's the nail. Life that's never ending. The clinch to that is they shall never perish. Now, here comes the second nail. One nail, however well fastened, does not always make a good joint, though. So Jesus went on to drive a second nail and clinch that as well. His second nail, no one will snatch them out of my hand. The clincher, my father has given them to me. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. We can imagine ourselves to be a coin folded in his fingers. That is a secure position for any object, but especially for us, considering who holds us. But Jesus adds that the hand of the Father is over us, and we are enclosed in two hands. We are doubly secure. If we feel insecure, we can remember that even, that even when we are held in that manner, the Father and the Son still have two hands free to defend us. I never thought about that when reading this passage before. I was so uh, fixed on the double grip, which you can really get fixed upon because that is secure. The Savior, the Almighty Savior who came down this earth and died for us, the one that the Father has exalted and given him a name which is above every name, it is that powerful Savior that holds us in his hands. And then God the Father's hand is over top of that, making us doubly secure. Um, consider a few other verses uh, about Jesus being the one, the Savior who not only saves us, but through his power keeps us. I read this verse, quoted this verse this morning. 
Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved for us in heaven, reserved for, in heaven for you, who are kept by our own merit? No, who are kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then we just sang this verse. 1 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day or until that day, that day that we see him. He is the one who keeps us. Watchman Nee told about a convert who came into distress to see him. He said, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply can't seem to be faithful to the Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. Nee said, do you see this dog here? He is my dog. He is house trained. He never makes a mess. He is obedient. He is a pure delight. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He is a total mess. But who is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. We are Christ's heir, not through our perfection, but by means of his grace. Jews said, now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to resent you faultless before the presence of his glory to the exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I think about that grand uh, last verse to the hymn, um, the solid rock. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. He is the one who presents us faultless before the Father and is not based on any merit that we have done. I used to sing as a solo an old song by uh, John W. Peterson. Not many people knew this song. But it talks about the, um, a pilgrim coming to the pearly gates. And then there rang a searching question from the keeper loud and clear. Say, have you a reason, pilgrim, that you should enter here? And I want to say it like John Wayne, say, have you a reason, pilgrim, that you should enter here? I come in the merits of Jesus, was all that he replied. The pearly gates swang open, they welcomed him inside. The second verse is just a repeat of the first verse, except he makes it personal. It's about me. When I come to the heavenly city and there comes that question, I will say, I come in the merits of Jesus who for sinners bled and died. I know that the gates will open. They'll welcome me inside. It's all based on the merits of Jesus Christ. And we are kept and presented faultless before the Father through the merits of Jesus Christ. So, we not only believe in security, eternal security because of the nature of the life that is given, it is eternal, and we shall never perish. 
And not only do we believe in eternal security because of the power of the one who saves and keeps us, but we also believe in eternal security because of the trust and worthiness of the one who gives us that life. Now, we're going to abandon the passage right now and go through the through much of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, talking about the trustworthiness of what God says. If he says he gives us eternal life, then what does he give us? Eternal life. And if he tells us that we'll never perish, then what? We'll never perish. You're a good audience. Or a good congregation. Maybe that's a better word for it. Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He, has he said and will he not do? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? It's that type of God we trust in to save us and to keep us saved. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. Uh, this is the, the background of this is when God was taking the kingdom away from uh, Saul and giving it to David. And Samuel said to Saul, And also the strength of Israel, referring to God, also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. And the word relent means that he should change his mind. Psalm 146. And the clincher to this verse, these six verses here is, who keeps his truth forever. We trust in a God who keeps his truth forever. But let me give you the buildup to that phrase there. Starting at verse 1 of Psalm 146, 1 through 6. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth, and the very day his plans perish. Happy is the one. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help whose hope is in the Lord is God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And this all-powerful God is the one who keeps his truth forever. In that famous passage uh, where Jesus is talking about the heavenly kingdom and how he's going away to uh, build a, uh, many dwelling places for his disciples, uh, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? What was Jesus' reply? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We're back to the story of Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And it says about him, and not being awake in faith, he did not concern, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to him, being fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able to also to perform. And that's why his faith was strengthened, because he placed that faith in an all-powerful God whose, wor whose word was trustworthy. Titus chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2, Paul opens his epistle by saying, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in a hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, 
promised before time began. In the book of Hebrews, we read again about Abraham. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You know, you can go to court, you place your hand on the Bible, and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And Abraham could swear upon nobody greater than that, than upon God. So God is trustworthy, more trustworthy than any human being. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For indeed men swear by the greater, and an oath for condemnation, or for confirmation rather, is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God showing, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability or unchangingness of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We have a strong consolation who have fled to refuge to lay hope Hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both steadfast and sure. The old hymn says, we have an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And that's because it's based upon the promises of God. And God's word are more trustworthy than any human words. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 12, or chapter 10 rather, verses 19 through 23, it says, Therefore having boldness to enter the holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. God who promised that hope, that hope of eternal life, is the reason that we can have such a sure foundation on our faith. We can hold fast the confession of our faith and we don't need to waver on that confidence. So, we believe tonight in eternal security, perhaps for several other reasons, but in tonight's message because of the nature of the life that God has given to us. It is eternal. It never ends. And we can never, what? Perish. And we cannot fall into condemnation. So we believe in eternal security because of the nature of the life that is given to us. We believe in eternal security because of the power of the one who saves us and the one who keeps us. We did nothing to earn our salvation. It is all based on the merits of Jesus Christ himself. And there's nothing we can do to keep us saved. And in fact, if we tried to keep ourselves saved, we wouldn't be saved, would we? It's all based on the power and the promises of God Almighty. And we believe in eternal security because of the trustworthiness of the one who gave us that life. 
Now, what should we take away from this sermon other than the fact that it's almost over and you can go home? <laughs> and you may get out five or 10 or 15, no, not 15 minutes early. We already ruined that. 14 to, to how many ever minutes left? We should be thankful. We should be thankful that we can place our trust in a God who is more powerful than we. We are weak. We are corrupt. We are full of sin. He is holy. He is set apart. He has the power to save. And when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because we have eternal life that we cannot lose, we should be exceedingly thankful. Then we should have confidence. We talked about that in the last couple of verses there. We can draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. We know whom we have believed and have persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. We shall never perish. We have eternal life. We have a high priest who's passed into the heavens and we can come boldly before the throne of grace and reserve mercy and grace in time of need because we have a salvation that is full and sure and complete and we cannot lose that salvation and nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. Now, I thought this illustration before and I was trying to look it up where, where it came from about riding on an airplane and how about those who have their full faith and trust that the pilot knows what he's doing has an easier ride than those who think that he will fail them. And if you're trusting yourselves to keep yourselves saved, um, you're on a bumpy ride to heaven. If you think you can lose that salvation, but we have a confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ that he not only saves us, but he keeps us saved. And therefore, with that confidence comes peace. We should have peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace in knowing that we cannot lose what he has accomplished and what he keeps. And we have joy. We rejoice that our names are written in heaven, and we rejoice in the fact that we can be confident in him. We rejoice that we have that peace. We are grateful for what he has done for us, and we rejoice that we have a salvation that is unshakable. So do you believe we can, you can lose your salvation? And who's the one who saved us? And who's the one who keeps us saved? Jesus Christ. He gives to us what? Eternal life. And we shall never? Who's going to snatch us up out of our Father's hand? No one. And what's going to separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Wow. If this was a test... You could all go home with a star on your paper. <laughs>